demons, the devil, deliverance, and the children of God. This is part four. There'll be one more. And tonight, dealing with the questions that people ask. You all have notes? You're all good? Can you all see? It's bright enough. You can read your notes. Everything's fine. All right. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, we've been reading tonight. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We wrestle with those. They don't indwell us. We wrestle with those. I've talked about that. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel doesn't mean the gospel is hard to understand. The mystery, as Paul talks about it here, is that the grace and mercy of God, God's people, are now not just the Jewish nation, but through Christ and the cross extended to the Gentiles. That we who were outsiders of the old covenant are now all brought in together in the new covenant. That's the mystery he's talking about. Just revealed with the coming of Christ. Boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. Doesn't even pray that he'd be delivered from chains, just that I'll be bold while I'm in these chains. You gotta admire that, as I ought to speak. I think maybe a quick review might be in order. I haven't done it yet in this series. We've this is the fourth. So we started. We started in part one of this study looking at the foundation of pretty much all what I'm calling spiritual warfare theology. That is that there are demonic footholds, possession, bondage in believers that have to be cast out. That's spiritual warfare theology as it's commonly understood, though I don't think that's the New Testament definition. So we started looking at the foundation for all of that spiritual warfare theology. And it's rooting in the trichotomist view of human persons. That's not complicated. Tri, three. Trichotomist means each person is made up of three distinct parts. Body, soul, and spirit. And pretty well all trichotomists teach that the spirit is saved at conversion. It is instantly Cleansed. It is instantly set apart as the dwelling place for the Spirit of God. That's in your spirit. 
The soul, that's another invisible part of your being, and it's made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. And that part of you isn't sanctified and saved at conversion. In many cases, according to Neil Anderson, spiritual warfare theologian, 85% of the time, 85% of the time, born-again Christians have either demons or demonic strongholds located in their souls. They can't be located in your spirit, because that's where the Holy Spirit dwells, but in their souls. This is what makes people sin. This is what makes people do wrong. And these demonic spirits, depending on your theology, must either be cast out or renounced, spoken to, cast down. We need deliverance. Cleansing Stream and a host of ministries have grown up and become a cottage industry around this. I took the whole first teaching, I can't go into all the detail obviously, the whole first teaching of this series showing that the scriptures just won't allow that kind of trichotomist construction with consistency. There simply are not separate residences for demons and the Holy Spirit in the human person. Body, soul, spirit, heart, those words are used virtually interchangeably in the Bible. And you just can't consistently map out these three areas that exist in the human person. In fact, Paul specifically calls the actual physical body, the part of us that we can see in the mirror, he calls our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not just your spirit, it's you that the Holy Spirit dwells in. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In fact, Paul's going to argue that one of the reasons you don't engage in homosexuality or sexual immorality, sexual relations outside of marriage, adultery, relations with a prostitute, I'm sorry, that's what he talks about. And he says one of the reasons you don't do that is your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's as physical a, pa- a passage of Scripture as you can find. Then we establish the impossibility of demonic indwelling or the establishing of demonic strongholds inside the believer's soul. We looked at passages of scripture. The Bible goes to great lengths to describe the new ownership that is established over the Christian, the whole Christian at conversion. There are wonderful, powerful texts. Colossians 1, 12 and 13 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, moved out of one kingdom into another. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It's talking about habitual, intentional sin. That's not the realm he or she lives in anymore. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does does not touch him. In the second teaching, we talked a great deal, we, I, talked a great deal, about the shift in the New Testament in the description of the kind of spiritual warfare Christians are engaged in. There is such a thing as spiritual warfare. It is defined in the New Testament. It changes as you read the New Testament. 
in the ministry of Jesus, in the gospel, he ushers in the inbreaking of his kingdom among the lost and the dying of this world. And he confronts, he speaks to, he casts out demons, plural. And then the disciples are commissioned, especially Mark 16. They continue that supernatural ministry as they too carry the gospel to the lost. They will encounter demons in unbelievers. But that not be, need not be an obstacle to the advancement of the gospel. They can be cast out in Jesus' name. You see it happening all through the gospels. You see it happening frequently in the book of Acts. But this is God's kingdom encountering the lost of this world. And there's certainly demonic activity. Then, strangely, you come to 1 Corinthians. So you finish the book of Acts. 1 Corinthians and the rest of the New Testament. All of these letters, epistles, written to churches. Okay, In all of these instructions, written to believers. Believers in the church. You'll find no mention of demons. No instructions on how to cast out demons. Like, that's such a dramatic shift that you just have to stop and say, wait a minute, what happened here? What you will find in all of the part of the New Testament specifically addressed to believers, you will find the emphasis is on the battle with Satan, the devil, singular. There are all sorts of examples, and we just went through a few very quickly. Ephesians 4, 26, 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Singular. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Singular. He will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around the devil. Notice, singular. Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Singular. Stand firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's three. We, st- we must have studied 15. And I believe this emphasis on the devil rather than the demonic is planned and highly intentional. I believe we're meant to perceive our spiritual enemy as an external enemy. Not indwelling us demonically. An external enemy. The devil's not omnipresent. He can't possibly get inside of all believers who are having spiritual problems. The apostles know this to be the case. And they deliberately set the battle of believers as a battle against a singular enemy rather than numerous internal enemies. We covered that in the second lesson. Then we looked at the nature then. If that's true, what is spiritual warfare? How does it happen for Christian people? And so we looked at the nature of the battle we as Christians are engaged in. If Satan can't be everywhere at once, how can it be that he is so successful leading so many Christians into sin and compromise at the very same time. How does he do it without demons invading believers? 
And then, in a nutshell, we spent the whole teaching devoted to the devil's use of this fallen world. He's called the God of this world. Uses this fallen world to cater to and to appeal to the desires of the flesh. We all have this fallen human nature, gradually being conformed to the image of Christ, but fallen nonetheless. And Satan knows how to use the elements, the, the mindset, the ambitions, the affections, the entertainment, the materialism. He knows how to use this world to appeal to desires in Don Horbin. He knows how to tempt me to prize something more than I prize Christ and his will for my life. So these are the three components of spiritual warfare. The devil is behind the battle. He has his temporary, limited control over the world. And he uses the events, the things of this world, to appeal to the desires of our hearts, to prize something more than Christ. So deceitful philosophies of relativism, hedonism. The devil uses this world to lead Christians to yield to the fallen desires of their own flesh. We all have them, and that's why Satan, using the world, has access to everyone at the same time, without demons invading the personality of Christian people. This is the only spiritual warfare the New Testament recognizes for Christians. There is no other spiritual warfare. I know that was a bit to cover. That's where we've come to so far. Point number one. There are objections. There are questions. I want to look at two or three of them tonight. Battling with fleshly lusts doesn't seem as much like spiritual warfare to me, Pastor Don. And I think this is a problem for a lot of Christian people. There's not a lot of sizzle in this. And people have been so immersed in teachings regarding binding the devil and standing on the enemy's throat and a host of other expressions, usually kind of pulled out of context. And now suddenly Pastor Don is telling them to Well, don't love the world, crucify the flesh. What kind of warfare is that? Any moron ought to be able to do that, Pastor Don. And and in my opinion, it's right at this point that many in the spiritual warfare movement need to realign their thinking with the revelation of the New Testament. I maintain that if we realized and assessed and committed ourselves to the terms of spiritual warfare as accurately set forth in the New Testament with the same diligence and intensity that is given to the contemporary spiritual warfare movement against demonic strongholds, then we would see the same measure of power and victory over debilitating stubborn sins that people think they experience in group deliverance sessions. 
This is so important. Like, we all need to realize that the battle with the lusts of the flesh is the spiritual warfare for your soul. It's, it's very clearly and specifically stated in the scriptures. Let me give you a great text. 1 Peter 2.11. Peter writes to Christian people. And he believes in spiritual warfare. I urge you as sojourners... And exiles. You see those pictures on TV? Refugees. Boats. Coming over. Lined up at train stations. Climbing fences. Refugees. So the teaching of the New Testament is... We may feel very much at home in this world... But that's what we are. In this world. Refugees. It's not our home. So I appeal to you, he says... As sojourners... And exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Nothing demonic, but that fallen nature that we all possess. Why? Why so urgent? Which wage war against your soul? Now, verses 9 and 10 make clear that Peter is thinking of Christians here. Because right before that urging, that urging to to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they war against your soul, right before that, he says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's not talking about pagans here. You were not a people. Once you were not a people. Now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So again, there's no no demons mentioned here. That's not the arena of the battle, but the battle is still real, and it's still intense. The battle is still for your soul. You can win or lose it. There's nothing more urgent. There's still much at stake, just because the nature of the battle is different. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. More and more and more, Christians no longer think of this battle with the world appealing to the desires of the flesh. Christians no longer think of this battle with the urgency placed upon it in the text. It's not a big deal to most Christians. You sin, you get forgiveness, move on. People want something more dramatic, more intense, more vivid, and with quicker results, hence the demonic. Just get it out. I'll be fine. Rather than every day of your life denying self and not loving the world, lest you lose your soul. But that's that's where the battle is. That's where the battle is. There's... Nothing more dramatic or intense or more urgent than this very battle with fleshly lust. You can lose your soul. I get that, by the way, from the words of Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Matthew 16, 24, 25, 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, all right, now we're on believer ground here. People following Jesus. That's who he's talking about. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Jesus doesn't mean you have a wooden cross on your back. It's not something you physically pick up. He's talking about a, 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 warfare, a warfare attitude, watching to the things of this world that cater to the desires of the flesh and the devil's plan to use that to cause me to lose my soul. That's what Jesus is talking about. 25. For whoever would save his life, that's giving in to the desires, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, that's crucifying the desires, for my sake will find it. For, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So, so here's Jesus. He's talking to his followers about discipleship. No demons. He's talking about the very same thing Peter was talking about. Fleshly lusts that wage warfare against the soul. He's talking about how Christians deal with these lusts, these desires. And, and that's why the Christian must, Jesus says, deny himself, take up his cross if he's going to follow Jesus. And, and Jesus says, no mistaking, he says, the soul is at stake in this. You can lose this battle. That's the intensity of the warfare. There's simply no way to get it back once this battle has been ignored and lost. Now, a lot of people are confused at this point, and I just want to say this. What will a man profit if he gains the whole world, forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? How do you get it back? And it makes it sound so hopeless. But it's not because there's an unwillingness of our Lord to forgive. That's not the problem. It's not because God isn't generous with grace and forgiveness. Rather, in the worst kind of spiritual defeat, the desires of the flesh, once catered to, and then repeatedly catered to, will rarely even desire genuine repentance. That's what Jesus means when he argues it's very hard to get the soul back once you've, once you've prostituted your inward desires with compromise at different points. It's warfare. That's the battle for the Christian. I was thinking about this in my own. This, this isn't in your notes at all. However poorly it was sometimes presented... I can only look back on my upbringing. And I had a pretty good upbringing. But it wasn't perfect. But this idea of this being the spiritual warfare, the world working through my fallen nature to buy my soul, all right? That's, that's the spiritual warfare. I said earlier that I don't think the church takes it as seriously anymore. And when I was young, growing up, it probably wasn't presented very intelligently all the time. Um, I mean, anyone here that's, that's under 40, you would just laugh. I'm sure you'd just laugh. I, I, uh, I never went to a movie like when I was growing up as a kid. I never in my life was allowed to go to a school dance 
I, to this day, I, I, I don't know what, what beer or, or wine tastes like. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying those were all great rules that I was raised with. That's not my point. But my point is, at least, at the very least, there was an understanding in a generation before me that Don Harbin wasn't likely to be tripped up inwardly by demonic strongholds. But I could, I could tell you the dozens and dozens and dozens of times my dad would sit me down and say, if, if Hollywood isn't the devil appealing to fallen nature, then I don't know what is. That's what he would say. And all I'm saying is, the caution that he was trying to instill was a good caution, even if the rules weren't always, you know, you could, my wife can tell you stories where you could, you could wear ears, earrings, but you couldn't get pierced earrings. Somehow the line of worldliness was getting them pierced. But all those rules and regulations that now we tend to look back and think, well, wasn't that cute? And I think what it was was probably maybe poorly applied. But the idea was, this is, this is enemy territory where we live. And in that, in that, they weren't off. And I'm not sure that in rejecting some of the silliness... We aren't embracing much of the world. And we might live to regret it as succeeding generations come along. It's the greatest irony of this present era in the church and this interest in the spiritual warfare movement that just when Christians are getting more focused, listen, more focused on a battle they don't have to think about, they're getting less focused on the one battle they must surely fight diligently every day. And there's something screwy in that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Point number two. Christians fight the battle with the devil by drawing close to God. Again, it's a truth that's just taught over and over again in the New Testament. James 4, 7, I read, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Or the passage I opened with, Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, if you just kind of jump into the middle of it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. I'm just going to kind of jump over these fast. Breastplate of righteousness, uh, shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace, um, shield of faith, um, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, now... In both those passages, the James passage and the Ephesians 6 passage, these are are classic passages on the kind of warfare Christian people are involved in in this present world. And they both teach the same thing. There's no instruction about confronting the demonic. They give no instruction about addressing, identifying, speaking to demons or Satan. There's no such instruction anywhere in the New Testament. 
How do we fight? And the emphasis here is that these passages frame the battle with the devil primarily in terms of strengthening the relationship with God. In other words, we resist the devil in large measure. This doesn't undo what I said about recognizing the temptations of the world, the desires of the flesh, and how, the, how Satan uses those. But in large measure, we resist the devil by drawing near to God. That's why... All the pieces of the armor that Paul describes in Ephesians 6, they're part of the believer's relationship with God through Christ. The truth of God's word, 14. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, 14. Actively sharing the gospel with others, 15. Keeping your faith in the Lord, strong and vibrant, 16. A sound understanding of doctrine, 17. Filling up your mind with the word of God, 17. Diligent in prayer, 18. Now, what do all those things do? Well, they keep you close to God. Here's spiritual warfare. You resist the devil, not by screaming at him. You resist the devil every time you pick up your Bible, prayerfully. You resist the devil every time you commit to personal prayer and seeking God's face. You are actually resisting the devil with consistent, ordinary church attendance. Where you're sitting right now tonight, you're resisting the devil. This is what the devil hates most. He surely doesn't have any future against God Almighty, and he hates it when people use means of grace to draw near to him through Christ. I got to jump. Point number three. Here's a question people ask. What about Christians who are sure they've seen other Christians set free from demonic strongholds? Sooner or later, you just, you have to face this question. I've talked to people lots of times who will say, Pastor Don, it's well and good for you to have your theology, but I've seen demons cast out of Christians. I've seen the violent reaction of demons leaving bound believers. I've heard voices change. I've seen manifestations. And I've seen their lives transformed by that experience. And I'm not sure I can explain everything to you in that. But I want to start by telling you how I always... How I always deal with difficult issues, situations that are hard to explain. Here's what I do. I always start with what I perceive to be the clearest teaching of the scriptures. That's where I begin. And then I move on to try and explain my own experiences or the experiences of others in the light of what I see the scriptures saying. Or let me state it the opposite. I never start with someone's experience and then shape what the Bible says in light of that experience. I start with the scriptures first. I make my decision there. Then after that, I move on to testimonies, stories, feelings, and a host of other things. Having said that, here's what I think might be some explanation for the testimonies you might hear and the experiences of others. What about that? I've seen Christians coming out of demons and I've seen them delivered and their lives set free. 
What do you say, Pastor Don? A. And this to me is a really important principle. If Christians sincerely seek God and turn from sin, even if they mistakenly attribute those sins to demonic forces, they will find help from the Lord. That just makes sense to me. I've been in places where people are praying for those who are demon-possessed. And there's usually great intensity at deliverance sessions. People are passionately seeking God's help. The sinner is sick to death of being bound in sin's sway. He or she is usually led by others to deal deeply in confession and remorse... And even though usually framed demonically, sins are specifically named and renounced, then there's usually follow-up and fellowship with concerned believers. Now listen, why would any of us be surprised that given that kind of environment, God would cleanse and minister to his children? Even if the theology were all mixed up, I believe the Lord wants to help anyone who sincerely wants to forsake sin. And if prior to this moment of spiritual breakthrough, if prior to that there's been great indoctrination drilled into my mind that the problem was demonic and that the renouncing of the demonic was the actual cause of that victory, there's no doubt that I will actually attribute my breakthrough as an actual victory over demons. That doesn't mean it was. Anybody who hates their sin prays with others and comes to Jesus is going to experience his grace and deliverance even if their theology about demon possession were all mixed up. Secondly, here's another part of my explanation. I agree that demons may be cast out of professing Christians. It is simply a fact. I'm not in charge of drawing the line who's in and who's out. But we do know from the New Testament that not everyone who professes Christ follows Christ, right? Not everyone who's raised in a Christian home and dragged to church is a follower of Jesus. I do know that Jesus made it very clear that those who know him and those who claim to know him can be in two different camps. Matthew 7, 21 to 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many, underline, will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Who are you? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. All I'm saying here is, I saw demons come out of someone and they're a Christian. And you, you just don't know the spiritual condition of that person. And that's not your job. Third, it's my personal belief that scriptures teach that not everyone who genuinely begins the Christian life stays with the Christian life. I know that's not the subject of tonight's teaching. I have looked at it before. 
But I think apostasy is a genuine possibility in the scriptures, particularly in the strong passages in the book of Hebrews. So, just because at some point a person was genuinely saved, I wouldn't take that to mean there's no possibility of that person ever encountering demonic bondage. That's why we are all encouraged to draw near to God as we resist the devil's appeals to the desire of the flesh. So God is the object of my attention. He has already won the battle with Satan on the cross. The lusts of the flesh are the immediate enemy I must put to death daily. The devil uses the things of this world to appeal to pull my desires in a direction that is contrary to the life of my soul and I can lose my soul. Such is the nature of that warfare if I'm not careful in it. So let's fight the real battle. And let's make sure we fight it God's way. Okay? Let's pray.